I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to John Lanchester and Rupert Beale, who both have pieces in the latest issue of the LRB on different aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. John Lanchester is a contributing editor at the paper, whose most recent book is the collection Reality and Other Stories. Rupert Beale is a clinician scientist group leader at the Francis Crick Institute. His latest piece is his seventh dispatch from the lab since the pandemic began in March 2020. Thank you both very much for joining me. So we're recording this in the afternoon of Monday the 13th of December. It's 10 days since your pieces went to press. In COVID time, that's roughly four doublings of Omicron cases. In your piece, John, which is a kind of overview of the pandemic so far, you write that we don't know where we are in the story. Everyone has been hoping since it started that the end is in sight, that we're nearer the end than the beginning, but there's still no reason to think that's true, is there? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. No, well, funnily enough... Because I've had those books for a while now. It'll astonish your millions of listeners to know that the LRB doesn't always review things like within seconds after publication. I know that's a scoop. Um, so I've had it for a while and been trying to sort of catch up with the narratives that kept changing and um, wrote the draft, which I sent in. I think they've had it for a bit over a month. And... Um, it's still, you know, it's still basically the same piece, which ended with it ends on this warning note about what might yet happen, um, and then sure enough, you know, about a week after I filed it, we started hearing reports from South Africa, and since then the news has got steadily worse. So there is that sense of, as I say, because I've been, you know, I've read off a shelf full of books and you know, a gazillion words of journalistic commentary, it gives you a very strong feeling of just not knowing where we are, you know. That's one of the things that stays with. And there, there have been these moments when it feels as if society and science is sort of coming out ahead of COVID and the end, you know, you feel like the end might be in sight. And this is one of those moments where that feels less true. You know, we hope we're closer to the beginning than the end. But, um, I mean, the end being defined as, you know, a more full, full-hearted version of normality. Um, but uh, I don't know if that's true. I think a lot of people are feeling rather deflated at the moment. Yeah. I mean, still in relation to that strange sense of time, which you've had. I mean, even the idea that it's nearly two, this has been going on for nearly two years, and sometimes it feels like far more than that. And sometimes it feels, <laughs> occasionally it feels as if it's, the old times don't seem that long ago. Um, and yet, as each new wave arrives, we seem to, the political response, the societal response, seems to, we're, we're, we're further behind than we should be. It's almost as if we haven't learned anything from the last time or the last three times. And, and you're writing your piece about the way that infectious disease within the last generation or two, largely thanks to vaccines, has stopped being a part of everyday life in what you call the, the weird world, Western-educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. So I remember talking to Rosemary Hill 
just when it was just starting and she remembered quarantining for measles that quarantine used to be sort of normal and we're two years into this pandemic but we still are we still in denial about the fact that infectious disease is a part of life again no i think i think it would be difficult to be i just i think that was one of the big reasons why societies were so caught on the hop i mean it's an interesting thing about the anti-vax thing is how decadent it is really when you when you see you don't have to know much about it that you know vaccines are one of the reasons life expectancy as i say in the piece it's more than doubled since the year 1900 soap being one of the other main reasons you know the use of um reducing bacterial contamination and think contexts like surgery and childbirth that's spreading around the world but vaccines are the other big one and so there is something in in the anti-vax thing which i think teaches us how decadent we've allowed to become drifting away from you know basic realities that have been true throughout human history you know one of the things that infectious things are really really lethal um I think, you know, the governments are trying to... They were very, very... They're particularly slow about learning from each other's experience. You know, there's that basic unpreparedness about infectious disease. They were very, very reluctant to learn from societies that have managed their pandemic response better. I think they have got the memo now. It's just the problem is that everything's been so contaminated by nearly two years of failure and confusion. And, you know, the thing we're living through in the UK at the moment is government i mean rupert knows more about this than i do i hope he'll talk about it but the government wanting to act as if it's reacting appropriately but people really not trusting them not trusting their motives anymore and there is a kind of profound fatigue about the things that we need to do i think that's a dangerous thing is a sort of response fatigue and there's also i mean there's a trust problem as well isn't there i mean the things that have emerged in terms of politics since that your your pieces went to press, you know, as Harold Wilson may or may not have said, a week is a long time in politics, but a, a day is a long time in in Boris Johnson's politics. And the question of the, the Christmas parties in Downing Street last year, and that it, it's not clear that if new restrictions are are imposed, there is a seems to be quite a strong feeling is why should we do what these people tell us to anymore? Well, one of the things that's quite striking about the resistance to believe him is that so much of it seems to come actually from his close colleagues. You know, the, the people who are complaining loudest about whether it's a distraction or a kind of manoeuvre are are Tory MPs. I mean, that's pretty astonishing. It's not some crazy person shouting at Speaker's Corner. It's actually the people in the building with him. I think, I mean, it's an odd one in a way because the idea of trusting Johnson seems like, well, why on earth would you do that? You know, um, why would you have only just lost trust in him now? Um... But the fact is that it, that does seem to be an accumulative. I saw a political scientist using a metaphor for Jenga, that it's like that game where you pull out bricks from the bottom of a tall edifice, wooden sticks, wooden bricks, and you stack them on top, and it gets more and more precarious as it gets higher and higher. And then the thing that knocks it over at the end isn't some huge dramatic thing, it's just one thing too many. And I think the accumulative loss of trust, to me it feels like that. It's not like there's a single incident it's just that the thing about the christmas parties coming on top of so many other betrayals erosions of trust lies and the crucial thing about not you know the, the thing about rules being for other people that thing in there's a school report of johnson's from when he was at eton that his father gave to a book called letters of note and i think johnson's about 14 in it and there's an extraordinary sentence in it about 
from his, I think, housemaster or headmaster, that he seems to feel a genuine sense of outrage at the idea that the same rules apply to him as apply to other people. And it's a very striking thing, that, because I, I think that seems to get to the heart of it. There's this kind of a genuine sense of baffled incomprehension about, but why would the rules apply to me, you know? apply to me of all people and that is profoundly corrosive that idea when people see those photos of part and hear of the stories about parties i think it really goes to the heart of it because in a response to something like this you really do need that feeling of collective solidarity all being in it together it being a kind of mutual enterprise where we all have to make sacrifices and the feeling that you know our leaders are very willing for us to make sacrifices but not willing to themselves is, I, I don't know, it, it feels to me like this is the sort of, those of us who are sceptical about Johnson have always been waiting for a thing where everybody sees it the way we see it, the way that the person we know him to be is on full view. And it feels to me like that that's happened now. This isn't going to, the public perception of him and of the government is, I don't think is going to recover from this. It's just a question of, how long the rest of this process of unravelling takes. And that question of our, us all being in it together, there was a lot of that kind of rhetoric two years ago, or nearly two years ago. There's a lot less of it now, isn't there? That, that seems to have dropped away. But, but then again, on Sunday night, he came out and said, promised a million vaccine doses a day, which was news to all the doctors and health professionals who were supposed to be delivering these vaccines as much as it was to anyone else. And people have been told to take more lateral flow tests and it's now impossible to get lateral flow tests from the government website. So in that sense, people are still doing what Johnson's asking them, but then unable to because of the, the mismanagement of it. Which could end up being extremely destructive for him, uh, as well as being a sort of... I mean, Rupert knows more than I do. I don't know how helpful that... I mean, it's clearly an aspirational target and the subtext is just get your shots. That's the message. But I'd be curious to know, Rupert, whether you feel that's likely to do more harm than good. I don't think it's going to do more harm than good. No, I think still um, it's really important to emphasise that getting a third uh, dose of vaccine is, uh, you know, probably the main thing that we can collectively do, uh, certainly over the medium term. And... Yeah, so, Tom, COVID time does move very, very fast. I was quite worried that by the time the piece appeared, the sort of basic message of get your third jab, you know, perhaps there'd be some data that perhaps cut across that. Um, at the time when I wrote it, there was very clear evidence that uh, three jabs of the Wuhan-based vaccines, Wuhan original variant of the virus-based vaccines, would be highly effective against Delta. Uh, it now looks like they'll be pretty effective against Omicron. So UKHSA, the entity formerly known as Public Health England, turned around in a very, very rapid time. It's really impressive, actually. You know, reasonably convincing data showing that three doses, at least in the short term, is going to be about 70-ish percent effective against symptomatic uh, Omicron infection. That is really good news. I mean, it could easily have been lower than that. Earlier than that, there were laboratory studies that came out, again, showing that you had reasonable titus of neutralization after three doses, greatly reduced from what you see against Delta, but still probably enough, at least in the short term. So I think the message is right. If you think about the logic of it, though, we are in a funny sort of way in quite a similar situation to where we were in December last year, 
where we knew there was this new variant. In that case, it was alpha. We knew that an extra dose of vaccine, at that point, only one dose because of the, 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 the match between the Wuhan variant and the alpha variant is actually quite similar in terms of the way in which the immune system sees them. So even one dose of vaccine at that point in December 2020, we knew was effective. So the logic there would be to try to shut down transmission as much as possible, protect everybody as much as possible with vaccination, and then open up. What we did then was not enough to reduce transmission. Um, what we're doing now is, I mean, clearly not enough to reduce transmission. The, the so-called plan B is something which would have been probably a good idea to implement two months ago. Uh, and in order to, if you really were trying to suppress transmission of, of the Omicron variant, you'd have to do something which is much, much more difficult in terms of social distancing. For a variety of reasons, that could be extremely difficult, both politically and pragmatically, because people are, you know, exhausted. But as much as people in the sort of, as it were, the general public are exhausted, I promise you the NHS frontline is more exhausted um, and um, is going to face an extremely difficult, you know, few months, both in the simple logistic, I say simple, both in the logistic challenges of delivering the extra doses of vaccine and, um, of course, the um, lateral flow tests, and probably there'll be pressure on the PCR tests at some point as well. But also in terms of delivering frontline care, not just to people coming in with COVID, but people coming in with everything else. So I, th- I think it's going to be a very, very difficult couple of months for the NHS. Do you think from the, from the medical point of view, if m- medical and scientific considerations were paramount, we'd go into hard lockdown now? Uh, That's a very difficult question uh, and one which I would only be partially qualified to, uh, as it were, answer. Yes, if people could behave like quasi-machines and could obey rules in such a way that it didn't impact on their psychological well-being, I think that would be true. But we're not, and it, it could be very difficult given that we've asked people to do so much and everyone's been looking forward to Christmas, haven't they? At least most people have. We certainly have. And um, the news that it might not be so great is highly unwelcome. And uh, as you point out, we've lost this institutional memory of of how devastating infectious diseases can be. My my very first piece for the LRB on this, back in March 2020, I said, well, look, the closest parallel to this is is the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic. And of course, nobody had got any useful memory of that whatsoever either at an institution or, of course, at an individual level. And I think people's sort of responses were therefore a bit sort of flummoxed. Not just the politicians, I must say. Also true of the sort of scientific and medical establishment in, in, in some respects, that people are sort of, you know, can't happen to us, can it? This is from centuries ago. Well, you know, it, it did. And all those sort of, you know, what sounded like very pessimistic projections where maybe 20,000 people will die, you know, it... Clearly, people had not kind of got their heads around quite what a, you know, once in a very long period of time uh, sort of event this is. And it also it's about place as well, isn't it? Because there is a sense of it can't happen to us now. This is in the past. But it's also these are things that happen elsewhere. Oh, yeah. And I remember yeah, this the, again oh, it's in March. There. Oh, it's in China. China's a long way away. Yeah. And um, then it's in Italy. Oh, but those Italians. And, and I remember that living in Italy... And uh, yes. saying to people in England, you are two weeks behind us. And people saying, oh, no, it's just you incompetent Italian bureaucracy. It wouldn't happen here. And that was still happening as, as it was already underway in the UK. And it's not clear that yeah. that 
that sense has gone away. There is still this sense of exceptionalism, not only Johnson's exceptionalism. But I think one of the things that the government w- will be when the report that they're trying to delay as long as they can um, finally arrives, I think one of there are a few things that's I think impossible to excuse. One of them being repeating the mistakes in the autumn that they'd made in the spring of 2020, but the other one being just that time that was squandered. You know, with Wuhan was an incredibly clear warning, Lombardy was an incredibly clear warning, and there was no, you know, they didn't take the lesson, they didn't act on it. And I think the parliamentary committee, the joint parliamentary committee, described it as astonishing, the reluctance to act, the slowness to act. And I, th- I think that's going to, that's just going to be a very clear judgment on on this administration, just that that failure over over time. But the science, I mean, especially the, the speed with which the research into Omicron has been done and has been shared has been truly astonishing. I mean, in a sort of a positive side of this, that it was first spotted, what, 20, 23rd of November, and within days it was shared around the world and the amount of research that's now been done on it. So that is remarkable, isn't it, Rupert? It is, and, and, and that is something where we, there clearly has been a lot of progress um, uh, uh, over time. You know, the surveillance systems are, you know, much, much better, the availability of diagnostics. I mean, you know, we're saying, oh, it's, isn't it annoying that we're out of lateral flow tests at the moment? And it is, but there weren't such things as lateral flow tests last time we were having this conversation. You, you know, at the moment, it's, it's straightforward to get a PCR. Uh, and, you know, of course, in March 2020, even if you were in hospital, it was difficult to get a PCR. If you were a frontline healthcare worker delivering care to critically vulnerable people, you couldn't get a PCR. So, you know, things have improved greatly. But the big, big thing, and, and this is why I think we're much closer to knowing what the end of the story is, I think, than we might otherwise be in a sort of position, is, is the vaccines. It, it, it's, it's the first generation of vaccines have been extraordinarily successful. You know, I always thought it was very likely that we'd be able to get vaccines. And of course, the huge amount of effort across the globe that was going into uh, vaccine development and the different kinds of vaccine platforms that were being tried. Uh, you know, I always thought it's very likely we'd get a vaccine. The fact that the very first generation of them would be so effective and would hold up not just against variants which are similar to Wuhan, but also variants like Delta, which are, you know, in a way quite dissimilar. You need more doses. They're struggling, I think, with Omicron. Three doses is clearly going to have a useful effect, especially in the short term. I would underline it is critically important for as many people as possible to get a third dose. But, you know, I think we're getting to the point where that generation of vaccines is likely to need updating. Um, And then there'll be another sort of scientific endeavour to try to work out what the best way of doing this will be. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different proposals uh, one sort of interesting thing is that you might try and generate more mucosal immunity, for example, with a, um, a vaccine that's administered nasally. Another sort of possibility is that you take a whole variety of different, you know, spike configurations that you know the virus has used previously and put them all into one. So it's a little bit like what we do with the influenza vaccine, which tends to have four different, you know, var- variants of, of, of influenza, albeit those variants are much more dissimilar to each other. Influenza's obviously been circulating in the human population for a much longer period of time. There's other efforts to direct uh, the vaccine responses, particularly invariant bits of the spike protein. So there's a whole variety of ways in which this might be done. I think the fact that we know we can develop highly effective vaccines means that, you know, something which could have been 
as bad as it's been, orders of magnitude worse has not been those orders of magnitude worse. So I think we we can sort of see, or we have a, a clearer understanding of where this is likely to end up, which is that the um, SARS-CoV-2 will become like one of the seasonal, the four circulating seasonal coronaviruses over time. I think that was that was your best guess as a virologist, uh, you know, back at the beginning. But you, you have to be very careful not to extrapolate too much from essentially only four instances that we know about. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, if you were to take four different cats and, you know, it was a domestic cat and a Scottish wild cat and an ocelot and, uh, you know, a puma, you might think, OK, one of these is a little bit dangerous, but none of these are really going to be very seriously damaging to humans. The next cat that came along might be a tiger and it might eat you. And and that could easily have been the case with SARS-CoV-2, right? Um, But it looks like this is more likely to eventually become as immunity builds up in the population of various kinds driven by vaccination, driven by vaccination and infection, sort of hybrid immunity, that over time the, the threat to the human population will settle down so that it's similar to the you know, circulating coronaviruses. The timescale of which that happens is very unclear. No, I was going to ask, is that, we, is that years, decades? Um, that's a, that, that is, I think, a guessing game at the moment. Uh, I and mean, as much as we're extrapolating from four cats and hoping that the next one's yeah. not a tiger, <laughs> you know, when, when am I going to run into a tiger? I don't, I don't know. Because <laughs> there was the hope, as you mentioned, the hope was that maybe Omicron is less severe. Although, as you said, there's no reason. To... Yeah, I, I, this is just—it's just this is caused by people not understanding the effects of prior immunity, right? I mean, of course, it's possible that it would be less severe. Just it's possible it's more severe. There's no way of judging that at the moment. No sensible way of judging that. I think what we can say is that in in South Africa at the moment, the hospitals are not totally overwhelmed. So you, you could have some hope from that that um, at least with their population structure and with their level of uh, immunity, which is largely generated by infection with a fair amount of vaccination as well, that it's it's not a situation which overwhelms that particular population structure that, with that healthcare system. South Africa is, of course, a much younger country than the UK on average, and that, that may be one of the reasons why we could be in a lot more trouble, despite having probably a higher degree of immunity in our population. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. So you've taken away the one piece of good news I was tentatively clinging to about it being less severe I mean I knew knew the demographic thing but the bad news is still intact is it that it it does seem to be the most contagious variant yet yes and and it's been pointed out by Susan Hopkins and and others that even if the uh, Omicron variant were let's say half as pathogenic if it's it twice as contagious, up. it, as it were, wipes out the... The, yeah. the peak still overwhelms your capacity of your hospital system to... I would say there's a huge amount of uncertainty still in this. There's a, some, some nice modelling coming came out of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and depending on which scenario, you can be within, you know, almost hundreds of thousands <laughs> of severe outcomes or not, and it's quite difficult to know. So 
Whereas I think we know it's going to put very substantial pressure on the NHS at the moment. I don't think we could say with certainty that it will be overwhelmed. But uh, uh, as, as I read it, we can't say at the moment with certainty that it won't be. So it's... Um, Do you think there's a timeline on when we'll know the probabilities of that? This is a little outside my field, and I would leave this up to the, you know, as it were, professional infectious diseases modellers like LSHTM to to give you sort of, you know, best guess scenarios about when we would know. Clearly, you know, this this virus has gone from, you know, literally a tweet by a postdoc in Imperial, very, very good scientist, by the way, to a global threat from, you know, the 23rd of November. That was the first anyone outside South Africa knew about this. And in South Africa, they didn't just sort of picked it up and started tracking it and thinking, hmm, this doesn't look good. So we are, we are very, very early days, but already you can see it's spreading enormously to the point where it's probably already the, the dominant um, variant in London and, and shortly will be in, in the rest of the UK. There was a question as to how accurate natural flow tests would be at picking it up. Yeah, so there is a bit of good news. So, so UXA have done some tests. They've not released all the data, but um, at least the, the first sets of tests that they've done appear to show there's no loss of sensitivity. There's been quite a lot of ANIC data of people with Omicron testing themselves with this variant or that variant of lateral flow test, and they've all come up positive. So it, it, whereas it's possible that one of, one of the proprietary tests loses sensitivity, it doesn't seem to be the case for the ones that we're using in the UK. I thought a, a, a nice. I saw a, a very good sort of seasonal tweet from a from a singer that I, I follow, being involved in music, um, suggesting the possibility of an advent calendar. But behind every window is a lateral flow test. I thought it'd actually be extremely useful if everyone in the UK were able to, on a daily basis, test themselves and remove themselves from circulation if they uh, if they were positive. And I also have a. I mean, maybe this isn't can't be explained simply in, in lay terms, but how is it that a third dose of the vaccine increases immunity if the antibodies that we produce in response to these vaccines are largely evaded by this new variant of the virus? Why does having a third dose work? Yeah, so it, it's a really good question. Um, so there's two, or well, there's multiple different components to an immune response to a vaccine. In terms of the antibody response, which is probably the main and most important, but certainly not the only response to a vaccine that you get. Um, the amount of antibody which targets your antigen, in this case spike, is important. But so is also what we call the breadth of that antibody response. So there are places, even on the Omicron uh, spike, which look pretty similar to the original variant, and you would predict that antibodies that bound to that particular or those particular spots would still be effective. This also we see with the neutralizing monoclonals of therapeutic antibodies, where some of them are clearly badly affected, others seem not to be so badly affected. So if, if you imagine that with one dose, you have a higher chance of producing a relatively narrow range of antibodies, maybe antibodies that only target one or two places on the spike, after two and then after three doses, you would tend to produce a, a broader response. So you might be targeting four, five, or six different places on the spike. And, you know, it may be that Omicron can evade five out of six of them, for example. That's sort of one explanation. The other explanation is that the absolute diversity of those antibody responses may also be increased. So that you've got a, a higher chance of something binding 
to a new variant because it's it's similar enough, if you see what I mean, and then you'll and then you'll be able to generate a sort of rapidly improved response to that area. Exactly what determines breadth of antibody responses? It's actually is really interesting. There's a postdoctoral uh, clinical fellow in my laboratory who's really interested in this, and that will become a subject of his research over probably the next you know many years. Some of these sort of things are relatively well worked out, or to some extent worked out in in mice, where obviously you've got an experimental model that you can interrogate in a way that you can't interrogate with humans. But actually, because of the increased surveillance that there is with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, and because of the sort of relatively defined nature of the vaccines and the recording of that, and of course the willingness, which I'm very grateful for, of people to participate in in research, um, I think we'll we will over time, understand more and more about the human immune response by studying responses to vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. So, yeah, interesting question, not fully explained. I think I've maybe given a flavour of the kinds of explanations that we're looking for, some of which are definitely true. And, and um, oh, the other thing to say, of course, that individuals, we're, we're in a way more different from each other in terms of the way in which we respond immunologically than practically anything else. You look at the differences between human beings, it's infection and immunity-related genes that tend to be most distinct. And so the sort of diversity of different kinds of responses you get between individuals is, is very, very high. This probably underlies to quite a large extent why, you know, some people can get SARS-CoV-2 and don't seem to, you know, have any real problems with it, and other people get, you know, very, very sick and, and die. So, yeah, it's fascinating from an immunological perspective. Um, it's not so fascinating living in a pandemic with a sort of two years of lack of social contact and general annoyance and, and fear and all these things which are not good for people. And the other question, of course, is we're talking about getting third doses. A lot of people have had none. Yeah. Um, and, and, John, you say in your piece that COVID feeds on inequality and it has really exposed and exacerbated existing inequalities within the UK and globally between rich and poor, between young and old. And there was maybe a hope 18 months ago that the shock of the pandemic might lead to fundamental changes for the better in the way the global economy works. Have those hopes completely faded now? I don't know about that because uh, you know come back to that thing i don't quite know where we are and it's possible at the end of this you have a moment that's not unlike the moment at the end of the second world war where people didn't want to go back to the way society had functioned before and the of you know building a country fit for heroes we, we might well feel that we are not happy to just you know reinstitute the status quo i think that's particularly you know the the area where I suspect there'll be some of the most pressure is on the intergenerational question. Because one of the disturbing things about the pandemic has, in effect, been seeing children sacrificing to protect adults. As a you know parent myself, I found that very upsetting thing to see. And it's been, you know, we've seen it across the whole of society, really, children sacrificing incredibly important parts of their development to protect much older people. Um, and it becomes a kind of strain on the social contract if you have politics which is geared towards older voters because you know they're the ones who actually turn out to vote and a kind of suffering and not just loss of income but you know a shutting down and narrowing down of life and no prospect of redress for younger people that doesn't feel particularly sustainable to me 
and you know is one of the areas where eventually you'd have hoped for some form of progress and hope in politics um doesn't feature much in the conversation at the moment though i i, th- I, th- I think partly because the our ruling party is so skewed towards exactly those you know older voters who are you know kind of very much their core audience but i mean i'd like to think that we can't just kind of go back to how it was there's also the question of vaccine patent waivers and there's a thing you know that royce has reported on 30th november that moderna's share price had gone up 28 percent because of the news of omicron and it's up 240 percent or something over the year and obviously, without suggesting that anyone's actively trying to make this happen, as it were, from a purely mercenary perspective, I don't know, the most the most lucrative scenario for the drug companies is that the pandemic continues indefinitely. A new variant crops up every six months or so. So the countries that can afford it buy millions more vaccine doses. The countries that can't afford it struggle on without them in conditions that are highly likely to give rise to new variants, which, and that, unfortunately, also looks like the situation we're currently faced with. Although what you were saying earlier, Rupert, suggests maybe that's not true, that there is that eventually the vaccines will, will pull us out of it. But surely to prevent new variants coming, there needs to be a massive push to get more vaccines to the parts of the world where they don't have them and where the new variants are emerging from. Yes, and there also needs to be a massive push to administer them. You know, there's, there's, been, there's been, of course, vaccine hesitancy in the UK, uh, and, and elsewhere across Europe, there's there's also high levels of vaccine hesitancy in in um, developing uh, countries countries that have had less access to the uh, vaccines. Uh, but when they when those have become available, they haven't been widely distributed. So it's 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 I think it's it's about more than simply saying here you are some vaccines, and you know tackling global health inequalities, which really is complicated, difficult business it, it should be obvious to everybody that it's crucial that we do this though, right I mean it even as a sort of just purely enlightened self-interest this is clearly something that we're investing far too little and I think in your piece John you point out that you know it seems like a very large amount of money so 25 billion that we would need to invest I mean from a sort of capital perspective I, I think I can't remember if it's an economist or one of these sort of uh, sort of journals that came up with a figure that your, your return on investment would be a trillion fold or something outright. I mean, just the most ridiculous bargain um, of, of almost almost a trivial amount of investment for the enormous benefit to the global economy. And, and I think you, you contrasted it with an aspect of the the US's military budget, approximately similar. How much good does that do? 20 billion on air conditioning every year in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, I think isn't it the case that the things like the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are harder to distribute because you need these incredibly tightly controlled cold chains? They they are a bit more difficult. The, the minus twenty is doable, and, and they, they, they originally the idea was maybe they need to be transported at minus seventy or minus eighty. It's much more difficult, um, but mi- minus twenty is is doable. I mean, fine, it makes it a bit more complicated. It's not eventually the main issue. I also. My perspective is probably the biotech and pharma com- companies are also not the main problem here. I mean, they're, they're very good at developing these. They're very good at scaling them up. They're very good at the um, technical aspects of production. It's obviously reputational for them. It, it, it's all the things that go around it. Um, I think more to do with governments and the way in which governments regulate um, pharmaceuticals and the way in which 
pharmaceutical companies tend to make their money. I mean, I think that the idea of mRNA vaccines, if you'd asked people five years ago where, where the commercial potential was, people were talking about them as cancer vaccines, this kind of thing, um, which would have been very much more geared towards, you know, medicine in the, in the Western world, where people will have, you know, money to spend on these sorts of things. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on health economics, but it, it seems to me that probably the source of the problem is not necessarily the biotech companies and, and founders themselves. It, it might be more sort of global rules about how things get distributed and divvied up. And, you know, even if things are cheap, if there's a limited supply of them and the Western world grabs five, to, five, 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 five times more than it needs, you still have a problem, right? Yeah. I mean, presumably that there are some of those rules that are affected by corporate lobbyists, and but we don't need to get into that. I mean, the thing, in terms of the public health Smallpox was eradicated by a global vaccination program. Polio, very nearly, it, it is clearly possible. Yes, a couple of uh, strains of polio have been eradicated. It's not, it's not completely eradicated, um, unfortunately. Uh, Rinderpest is the other one that's been eradicated. It's not a human pathogen. Eradicating SARS-CoV-2, I can't see any, any that happening anytime soon. Um, even if you did develop vaccines which were completely sterilising um, for all possible variants, which might be possible, um, the logistics of distributing them virtually everywhere would be almost impossible. And then, of course, you always have the possibility of what we call reverse zoonosis. So there have been so many kind of human infections. This is actually spilt over into other animal populations, you know, everything from sort of uh, mustelids to white-tailed deer to hippopotamus, you know, look, the, the sort of people who've been interested in coronavirus evolution for a long time are really fascinated by this as it seems to be a virus that's evolved to infect multiple different bat species and possibly because bats are quite a diverse, very diverse set of mammals, it's sort of evolved to affect, infect large numbers of different mammalian populations. So from that point of view, it's very hard to believe we would we'll, we'll succeed with a global eradication campaign. In terms of eliminating it, so the technical difference between eradication and elimination, eradication, you basically got rid of it. Global elimination is you've reduced it to a tiny number of cases within a defined population. I think it was possible to believe that was going to happen when we had the, the worst variant was at that point alpha and we had vaccines that were highly effective against it. I mean, it looks very unlikely that that's going to be an achievable aim at any point soon, given the sort of propensity of this virus to come up with versions like Omicron. Who knows whatever we're facing further down the line. I mean, my knowledge of Greek runs out at some point. Tau, Sigma, Omega, and then I don't know, start with the new alphabet. You can just be alphabet absolutely certain that none of them are going to be called the G variant. That's the one thing you know for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we've already skipped it. We? we already have, yeah. New and yeah. G, yeah. 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 On some, yeah. Omega. Omega awaits. But... As you were saying, Rupert, the, so the, the, way, the way out is enough immunity of different kinds that this virus and its variants will continue to circulate and will continue to mutate, but we will have, most people will have sufficient immunity from prior infection and vaccination that it will no longer be a life-threatening disease and it will become like one of the other four circulating seasonal coronaviruses? I think that's by far the most likely scenario. I mean, you could argue it was always the most likely scenario. I think everything we've seen so far suggests that that is 
what's going to happen. But I mean, no one's even, until this pandemic came around, I expect most people had never heard of the seasonal coronaviruses. They just don't don't cause very large amounts of societal problems. I mean, but it's the common cold. It's the joke about who's going to you know find a cure for the common cold. If only we had. Yes, I mean there are many other common cold viruses that are not sure, coronaviruses. Viruses, sure. Hundreds of upper respiratory and potentially lower respiratory tract human pathogens that are catalogued, and we're not going to get rid of all of them anytime soon. And John, that you, you talk, mentioned earlier, the the, you know, the end of the Second World War and the way that that society did, did change. I mean, are you optimistic about that kind of moment coming out of the pandemic? I, don't, I, I suppose it depends on the, the various subsequent plot twists, you know, and how we're left feeling, you know, feeling about the societies we belong to. I think one of the damaging things has been a kind of... has been, you know, what, what, when you think, what are states for? And at the simplest, I think, states are for protecting and looking after their citizens. I mean, that's that's presumably why we have them. And I think the kind of extent of the... I mean, one of the books I was reviewing with a Sunday Times journalist is called Failures of State. I think there's something potentially quite dark about the idea that states don't do what it says on the tin. And so I think we have quite a lot to work through in terms of our feeling about how states are supposed to function, what politics is supposed to do for people, how our collective interests our collective claims on each other all get negotiated i think it was all quite um a profound set of things um and i think it's going to take time really to work out how that how that feeds out whether we end up with in a moment which is kind of more selfish and atomistic and individual and more you know i'm all right jack you know i've got my vaccine i'm fine or whether there is increased emphasis on the the ways in which we need to you know, pool our interests and look after each other. I mean, I really do think it's too early to say. I'd, I'd like to be optimistic about it because um, I'd like to think we can learn, you know, from things like this. And I suppose that atomization is a possible one of the many bad effects of lockdowns as it increases that sense of atomization. Yeah, it's paradoxical, isn't it? Because this thing that affects everyone simultaneously also does have this um, additional effect of loneliness. It's one of the odd things that you, uh, I think I say in the piece, you know, it would have been so much more damaging without the internet. The internet's allowed all these things possible, including this conversation we're having right now and that people are listening to, and the whole kind of transformative impact on the way people have been able to work and interact through the pandemic. And at the same time, there is this sort of isolating and atomizing side to the way we've dealt with it. You know, we're all spending a lot of time on our own. We're all spending a lot of time looking at screens. And, you know, there was a tremendous sense of relief at emerging from that. Um, and I think, you know, back to Rupert's point when he was talking about, you know, if we were all machines, yes, we'd be going into lockdown, but we're really, really, really not. And I think that kind of, it's just a very complicated equation, you know, what we need to do to get through it and how we're going to be left feeling at the end of it. I mean, who knows? John Lanchester, Rupert Beale, thank you both very much. You can read John Lanchester and Rupert Beale's pieces in the current Christmas issue of the LRB, along with Julian Barnes on Flaubert, Emily Witt on Maggie Nelson and Andrew O'Hagan at the Pantomime. <laughs>